Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello. Welcome to The Chat Returns, a mini-series of conversations about our relationships with the world's greatest animation studio, Studio Ghibli. I'm Michael Leader, and I've seen a lot of them. And I'm Jake Cunningham, and I'm feeling spirited. So join us on our quest into the glorious world of Ghibli. Michael, it's lovely to be here. Uh, lovely to welcome another guest into uh, the Ghibliotech to talk about their love of the studio. But in this case, we're kind of zoning in on a particular film as well, uh, which I suppose we haven't done since the the old series of Ghibliotech when we actually just did one film at a time. Yes, we're marking the 20th anniversary of the Japanese release of Spirited Away, a little film you may have heard of, with a, a guest that we're so pleased to welcome to the Ghibliotech, Emily van der Werf. Yes, Emily van der Werf is one of the finest film and TV critics out there. Um, she's someone that I will always read every article that they put out. Um, it's just such a real honor to have her on the show she is also a podcast writer in her own right she's writing a fictional podcast called Arden and for those podcast listeners to our show who are also seeking out every bit of a kind of film and tv podcast content out there uh, you've probably heard Emily appearing on some of the best other shows and uh, giving her kind of insightful imaginative opinions and just offering a totally unique voice and something that we could never bring to these films. Absolutely. I've been reading Emily's work for years, um, way back when at the AV Club. Uh, she was part of like actually you know, forming what we think of when we think of TV recap writing. Um, way back in the sort of late 2000s, early 2010s, her writing on Mad Men. She co-wrote a book about the X-Files as well. You know, it's such a respected and venerable TV critic. But I always have loved the fact that uh, Emily's favourite film, or one of her favourite films, is Spirited Away. So we jumped at the opportunity to talk about Ghibli with her. Yeah, and th this was such a brilliant conversation. And we've, we've, we're both kind of big David Lynch fans, but that's not often something that we get managed to get into on our Studio Ghibli podcast. So this is uh, one of the opportunities we've had to really nerd out about David Lynch as well. And so uh, for anyone who 
uh, listens to this conversation and wants to follow that up, do check out Emily's article that she wrote for her newsletter comparing the dream logic worlds of Miyazaki and David Lynch uh, because it's something we get into in the conversation and it is a great read so make sure you check that out uh, and for any other kind of extended reading uh, there is also the Ghibliotep book uh, which is going to be out in September or October if you're in the US so you can pre-order it now and that's Michael and I uh, working our way through the feature films of Studio Ghibli. Yes, from Naushka all the way to Earwig, a film gets a chapter each. I do my historical nerdy production background, the stories behind the films, and then Jake delivers his film fan reaction. Although when we originally covered these films on the podcast, you were watching them for the first time. Now you're a bit of an expert yourself. Uh, it's uh, our, our chance to put it all down in writing and in print. And for anyone that wants even more Ghibliotech fun, then uh, make sure you check out our Library Cafe spin-off series, which is happening over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, that's our opportunity to break out and have conversations about loads of other stuff. Uh, on our most recent episode, I'm talking about the uh, seven-inch collection of Studio Ghibli singles that I was given for my birthday. And I was talking about all of the various strange Japanese sounds I listened to. I think I focused on the Makwaju Ensemble, which is a, a minimalist marimba-led album from the early 80s that was composed and produced by Joe Hisaishi in the years before he joined the Ghibli cause. But let's get back to Spirited Away. Happy 20th anniversary to Spirited Away and our conversation with Emily Vanderwerf. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Emily, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And this podcast for me has been a journey of discovery from not knowing anything about Studio Ghibli to watching all of them and loving so many of their incredible films. Um, but we love talking to people about their own journey with Studio Ghibli. 
So what was the first Ghibli film that you remember encountering? And do you remember your feelings about it at the time? I think I watched Mononoke before I watched um, uh, anything else. That came out in 99 in the States um, and was like this this big thing. Uh, that was a big year for movies, uh, obviously, in like the American film industry. And it was sort of a contributor to that. And I watched it and was like, I don't really get this. It's, I get why people love it, but it's not for me. I was a stupid teenager at the time. Uh, Mononoke is still one of my less favorite Miyazaki films. Like, I think it's brilliant and beautiful and a masterpiece, but also I prefer several others. Um, and then Spirited Away uh, was the second movie I saw. I saw that in theaters during its American run, which was honestly um, really you know, quite a good dub. Um, those, those dubs that were produced by Disney in the, uh, late nineties, early two thousands were all really strong. You know, it has Devay Chase and, um, Phyllis Diller, I think. (laughs) And like, I just really vibed with it. I really loved that movie. And, and since then I've seen, I think all the Ghibli movies, I've definitely seen all the Miyazaki's. Um, but, uh, I think I've seen all the just Ghibli in general and like, it's it's beautiful uh it's it's a beautiful studio and uh they make beautiful films i don't know i don't know what to tell you um emily so i mean i've been reading your work since i was you know a student many years ago and back then you know for me you were one of the must read tv critics and so i don't associate you with animation so i want to know what is your relationship with animation as a kid growing up now and then as a critic i mean i loved disney movies growing up um, I really got into Pixar, um, you know, as a high schooler and, uh, actually for a lot of my adult life, like, um, Pixar was like a pretty big deal to me. Um, I've only sort of recently been in a place where I'm like, eh, you know, I haven't seen a lot of their recent movies, which is fine. So yeah, I love animation. I don't love it kind of in the same way. I think a lot of people of my generation do. Like, I like animation that is a little bit unsettling is the wrong term, but like a little bit like there's a there's the idea that what you're watching is a is a a veneer for something darker and deeper and more complicated to comprehend, which I think is why the the films of, of Studio Ghibli like speak to me so much because that is just sort of their mo. But like. I love this studio out of Ireland right now named Cartoon Saloon, which is doing kind of some of the same things um, that I think that these these early uh, early the wrong way to talk about Spirit Away, but that that early Studio Ghibli was doing. And I love the way that they like have folk tales and legends and fairy tales sort of backing up what they're doing. And like uh, Wolfwalkers, which came out in 2020, was my my favorite movie of that year and deserved better. So I do love animation. Um, but I tend to not be super into animation that is that wears everything on its sleeve. Um, as an example, I think the the Pixar movie Inside Out is pretty brilliant, but I think the metaphor at its core, while a very smart metaphor, like you know, it's it's it is what it is. You don't sit there and like get a bunch of different understanding from it. Like it tells you what it wants to be, and I find that to be the case with a lot of American animation aimed at kids. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Um, and that increasingly is like not my jam. Um, but 
uh, I live in a country that is very, very literalist and likes literalist readings of things, which is not unusual, but I think there is a specific kind of American literalism that too often infects the media that we uh, produce for children. Well, I, I think something that Michael and I can agree on is how much we love the, the depth of Studio Ghibli's films. That's how we spent three years talking about them. Um, but also of Cartoon Saloon's films. Um, Wolfwalkers was, for both of us, probably the, the best film of last year as well. But uh, we, we've mentioned it. Let's, let's talk about Spirited Away, which is, for you, an in- incredibly special film. Was, was that a, a love at first sight or has uh, your opinion shifted and changed over the years? Oh, yeah, it, it was it was love at first sight. I When I saw that movie, I adored it. Um, I saw it in early 2003. It was released in the United States in 2002, which is how it won the Oscar for animated film. Um, but I saw it in early 2003. It was playing at a like one of our dollar theaters in the town of Sioux Falls, South Dakota. And I saw it for probably like two bucks. And I think my then girlfriend, now wife, and I were like the only people in the theater. And it was just transformative. It was it was magical. My wife at the time was sort of actively hostile toward Mononoke. So she was super not interested in Spirited Away. And she was also similarly transported by it. My journey with it has been growing, having the film grow in my esteem. I saw it a couple of other times uh, after that 2003 screening and was just like, yeah, this is a great movie. And then at some point in, I think, 2019, I just was like, you know how when you're a kid and you're just sort of like arbitrarily like, this is my favorite thing. I just literally was like, Spirited Away is my favorite movie. And I had always had like a very pat answer that my favorite movie was It's a Wonderful Life by Frank Capra, which is a movie I adore, continues to be, you know, in the old top 10. But just at some point I was like, no, Spirited Away is my favorite movie. And it has, I've watched it so many times since then. I watch it when I'm having like a hard day a lot of the time, especially now that's so easily accessible um, in the U.S. on HBO Max. Like I will just put it on and check it out. And um, it's a film I find new and richer meaning and ideas in uh, every time I watch it. You know, I think most of the films Ghibli has made are fantastic. At the very least, they're very good. There's a couple where I'm like, yeah, whatever. Uh, but I'm still like, that's a good movie. This one, though, I think is sort of transcendent. And like, I don't know how to talk about these movies. There's this old truism that the hardest thing to do in criticism is not separate good from bad, but separate good from great. And then there's this other thing that's like, sometimes you're a director who mostly makes good films often makes great films and then you make this like transcendent work of art that like crosses time and space and feels like it has tapped into something fundamental and elemental at the core of humanity how do you talk about that you know how do you separate that from everything else and that's kind of how I feel about Spirited Away like it's one of those things like that has only existed like 10 times throughout human history and yet here it is we got to be alive when it was made wow that that that's a lot. I mean, Michael, your your experience in Manchester was, uh, I mean, similarly uh, holy. I I think as well. I didn't pay two dollars, and it was uh, the art house cinema in Manchester. So maybe we had a, a slightly different theatrical experience. But yeah, that was where I saw Spirited Away, and it's one that I've returned to over and over again. I like what you said, Emily, about how 
you appreciate animation where it, it's not all worn on its sleeve, it's not too literalist, and it seems that's what you're responding to, at least one of the main things you respond to with Miyazaki and Spirited Away, that it isn't all just there for the taking, it's something you have to wrestle with as a viewer. Yeah, I wrote a, a little piece for my newsletter um, la, earlier this year about the ways that David Lynch and uh, Miyazaki use dream logic in very specific, pointed choices they make. They use dream logic to sort of create an alternate world. Um, I think that there is a logic underlying their dream logic and a lot of what Lynch does has been sort of boiled down to weird stuff happens. And a lot of what Miyazaki does has been sort of boiled down to, oh, mystical stuff happens and there's cute creatures. But like you watch Spirited Away and our our main character, um, Chihiro, um, also known as Sen, has no idea what's happening for most of the movie. But you as a viewer similarly don't know what's happening, but also like sort of get the sense that if you could like sit down and take over Yubaba's roll for a day you would understand all the rules of how this world operates but because you are just a human girl you're in that perspective there is such a limited window into um what is happening that you're just never going to grasp all of it it is just a fundamentally brilliant and beautiful conceptualization of the ways that you understand the world when you're 12 which is you know that there are the these ways that things work and you have a basic idea of the functioning of like humanity and like you know that you know like for instance um, this doesn't come up in spirited away but i think it's an obvious example you know for instance that like sex exists and you know that like you might be starting to feel like the stirrings of attraction to different people but also it's this weird, mystical, terrifying thing. And there are rules you don't understand. And like people can try to explain the rules to you, but it doesn't really make sense until you've lived through them. And like, that is the way I feel watching Spirited Away. Not that it captures my experience of coming to understand sex, but that it captures my experience of coming to understand adulthood as a, you know, 12 year old girl. Like it was this vague veiled mystery to me that only started to make sense in fits and starts. And like, it is very interesting to think about like, what does please don't make spirited away to Hayao Miyazaki, but like, what does spirited away to look like? Like the story of like, what if Chihiro had just gotten stuck here? What if that was her life? And she just grew up in this place. Would she have come to understand it better? I think maybe, but also like there is something so fundamentally ununderstandable about this movie that it sort of rejects that premise all the same. Like there's something about this world that you cannot understand if you are a human being. And I think that's beautiful. And yet I do totally feel like Hayao Miyazaki like has like a complete like a list of rules for how this world operates. Like, you know, those RPG setting manuals. I feel like he has one of those for this bathhouse and he's like, and then the train goes here. But yeah, it's so cute. It's so keyed into the emotional experience of being a child who's almost an adult and is sitting on the precipice of understanding so many things, but also understands so few of them. And like the movie, every scene is just keyed into that emotional experience. And that's why it works. And that's why you don't sit there and question like why things are the way they are. Because when you're 12, you don't do that. You like are constantly frustrated by your inability to understand that. That comparison you're drawing between Miyazaki and David Lynch is such a fascinating one. And one that I don't think we've talked about 
Lynch in relation to Miyazaki on this podcast. We've mentioned him. We did a few episodes on the work of Satoshi Kon, so films like Paprika, and that has a bit more of a direct link to Lynch, at least on a you know on an immediate level. But it is fascinating. We've we've talked not not only just Jake and I talk about these films, but we talk about the way that reviews and critics talk about Miyazaki's films, and there are so many almost gutters that reviews fall into if to use a bowling analogy and there isn't there aren't really many that take it as using dream logic and nightmare logic they often just go oh it's weird yeah so yeah. it's really fascinating to, to to draw that comparison it unlocks a whole layer of it to me i think well i mean a lot of it is drew, drawn from um japanese myths japanese folk tales like which i'm sure you've discussed I have a friend who lived in Japan for several years and she got really into the mythology and, and folklore of Japan. And like, she can tell you, she can tell me a little bit more about like what these creatures represent and, you know, how they sort of play into this understanding of the world. But like at the same time, myths and legends operate via dream logic. Like I, I read, um, I was in a, 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 a like adult education class at my church last year. This is like going to feel like a weird tangent, but I promise <laughs> it will make sense. And as part of it, like we were asked to read several Bible stories that like I knew well from having gone to Sunday school as a kid. I was like, I know this story. And then you read the story and it's just unfathomably strange. Like whatever has happened in the process of that story being told and told and told and distilled and distilled until it was finally written down, just there are huge, tremendous narrative leaps that are made. And you're like, okay, sure. I guess that happened. And like the character's emotions shift on a dime and you know, you can never quite understand why anybody's doing what they're doing, but that's not the point of the story. The point of the story is not to understand why people are doing what they're doing. It is to sort of be confronted with the divine and the divine is fundamentally not understandable by human comprehension so i feel like yeah i feel like lynch and miyazaki have tapped into two different sides of this same mythological folkloric dream logic core lynch has really trapped into the dark scary side of it and miyazaki's tapped into the much more I don't want to say positive because like these, not all of these movies are about characters who enter a landscape where everything is great. I mean, Spirited Away is not about that, but he has tapped into something humane within them. I think Lynch has tapped into the ways that our dreams express the ways we destroy each other. And I think Miyazaki has tapped into the ways our dreams express how we build each other up. And I guess that would be sort of my perhaps too tidy delineation of the two. Um, all I'm, what I'm saying is I want to watch uh, Spirited Away and um, Mulholland Drive in rapid succession. <laughs> Emily, you're giving me flashbacks to when I was uh, having to study Mark's gospel and just being fascinated by the story of the fig tree and not understanding. Yeah. Just the, it's just, a, it's mad. <laughs> and the thing, the, the thing about all of this is, you know, because this is still an act of religion in our world, people are sitting here and trying to be like, well, this is why this happened. And this is like Jesus's character motivation for getting mad at this tree. But on some fundamental level, you're not supposed to understand. You're supposed to be like, I don't know what's happening here. And it freaks me out. Yeah. It's, and it's just short and sweet, that one. That was this like your yeah, 80 minute film of a Bible verse. But you get a lot from the fig tree. Recommend it. So when, when you're uh, putting on HBO Max and you're putting on Spirited Away uh, for the afternoon, what, what are the, if you're having to kind of work on the laptop or something and look up to it, what are the 
the key moments maybe that will always make you look up like well, your your chihiro with the red bean bun or your your train station moments have you got your your standout bits that will always catch your eye i always love the little soot spirits i think they're just i mean this is just like a like a super trite observation but they're really cute like <laughs> i like to see them bounce around and be you know sort of there is something about them that is very endearing but also kind of insect like and i like that that combination of elements um but yeah, like it, this is such a cliche answer because it's the thing everybody points to when they talk about this movie. But the train sequence is gorgeous and evocative and brilliant without ever once saying what's happening. It is just specifically capturing an emotional idea of being a little bit in over your head and being a child, but also being like, I think I can figure this out. I think I can do this. I think I can get to where I need to go. And like, I don't know. The first time I saw it, I was like emotionally gutted by it. I also always look up for the conclusion. Um, and I want to talk a little bit more about how this movie intersects with my transness, but the conclusion is just really a beautiful piece of work to me. The characters falling through the sky and, you know, Chihiro helping um, the, the river, you know, sort of remember it's a river, remember he's a river, I should say. And, you know, the little mouse and bird and like the drops of water. It's just, it's another really evocative sequence. I don't think the movie ever quite tops the train sequence, but that ending is so jubilant and doesn't try to top the train sequence. It's just like, this is what it feels like to float above it all this is the only possible way you could end this movie which is just the sheer feeling of release it's funny that you pick out the ending because that is such a source of debate as well um that people think that that is maybe where spirited away lets itself down where this kind of confusing ending where the the you have to choose between the pigs and it is maybe an anti-climax but again like it is fairy tale logic you know it is exactly the kind of thing that would happen in a fairy tale. It is exactly the kind of thing that would happen in a dream. And, you know, in a dream, you just know sometimes. You just know that a certain thing is happening. And yes, I agree. If we are looking at this movie in terms of a three-act structure, um, which I don't think we should. I don't think it adheres to that storytelling ideal. But, okay, let's just look at it as that. Act one and act two are much stronger than act three. The ending of this movie is... I don't want to call it a letdown because I think it's very successful at what it's trying to do, but it is he heads in a direction we maybe don't expect it to. And that's always frustrating for an audience. I've grown to really appreciate it over the years, but I get why, you know, if this is your first time watching the movie, you're like, yeah, it lost a little steam in the last 20 minutes, but I don't know. I don't think that's the case. I think it is full of beautiful images, if nothing else. Yeah. We're touching something there on, on, on the conflict between sort of textual and contextual reading. And another, not to labour the connection between Lynch and Miyazaki too much, but they're both filmmakers who often make the best out of sometimes quite trying production situations. Like Mulholland Drive is this wonderful, strangely shaped thing because it was, you know, an elongated pilot, whatever, and Lost Highway as well, was bodging together of multiple stories. And Spirited Away, the reason why the back third is so different is they got about halfway through and did a production plan and realised that if they got all the ideas down that Miyazaki wanted, the final film would be four hours long and be two years past its deadline. So that's when they chopped it right back, focused on a couple of key characters and brought it home. But then that results in this 
yeah, as you say, slightly oddly shaped thing that we then as fans or viewers just wrestle with bringing to it, thinking that it's the fully formed story. And we've spoken to filmmakers and writers who are just, they have to wrestle with Miyazaki's choices and decisions as a storyteller because they want to be inspired by it and take something from it themselves in their own work. And um, meanwhile, Miyazaki's like Lynch, a very memeable filmmaker in interviews, and um, he can be, he can sit there like Lynch in one of his most famous memes and just say, you know, I will not elaborate. <laughs> the thing, the film is the way it is. Yeah, I'm a big fan of the TV work of Damon Lindelof. He's the guy who co-created Lost and The Leftovers and Watchmen. And I think that he comes the closest in television to capturing this sort of feeling of like, things are just kind of happening and you understand that there is an underpinning to them. But, you know, whatever happens is what happens. And I think about that a lot uh, with the sort of the um, the thing in Spirited Away where it feels like it is a truncated version of a much larger story, like which is a thing you feel even not knowing the production process. I think at four hours long, it would still feel like a truncated version of a much larger story. And that's one of the things I love about the works of these artists is like you just find yourself stranded in another place and you don't quite understand the rules and the rules are maybe there and maybe aren't. And even as you come to understand them, they prompt like 16 other things like, yeah, I would I am sure given how successful this film was that the four hour version would have been just as successful. I would love to like read that document at some point, but I don't know. I think what we have is kind of perfect. And I think that an imperfect ending is part of what makes it perfect. Um, there are some like, I hate a perfect movie. You know, I hate a movie where everything falls into place and everything is just designed just so there's nothing to think about there. Like, obviously I don't hate a perfect movie. Watching a perfect movie is fun, but a movie where everything clicks into place like clockwork, there's just nothing to really think about afterwards. That's not the case with spirited away. And like, I do think, whatever element of its perfection is tied up in its imperfection is fascinating to me. Like, yeah, the ending's a little thin on the ground, but that's, you know, you can also be like, that's how a 12 year old girl would understand all of this. She would know something momentous had just happened to her and to people she cared about, but she wouldn't understand the full impact of it for decades, you know, if ever, there's this idea about um, how children interpret traumatic events that happen to them. And when I say traumatic events, most people sort of land on, you know, abuse or um, the death of a parent or something like that. But it can just be like getting bullied at school. It can be things like all of us experience events as children that we consider traumatic. And then they kind of get locked away in us. We don't actively think about them. It's not that we're like the, the idea of repressed memories or whatever. It's... The idea of there are things in our brains that we are actively choosing not to look at. And then we get to a place where we're ready to look at them and spirited away in some ways feels like that. Like it almost feels like Chihiro as like a woman in old age looking back on this and kind of remembering just enough to piece together what happened and yet not quite having enough information. And I think that the ending is maybe the best encapsulation of that. So yes, spirited away is about childhood trauma, apparently. I think that it's a solid case for the, the ending actually being good. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I think when you think about this as a, a kind of a tone poem of things that happened to Chihiro that she can sort of encapsulate in a narrative, it starts to feel a lot more 
compelling. The thing, the things in the film that don't make sense start to feel a lot more like they fit within the rubric of what it's trying to do. But uh, Spirited Away was one of those rare cases where Miyazaki was reined in from making the film as long as he wanted, because more often than not, with films like Porco Rosso, Totoro, they were meant to be 45 minutes long, but just ballooned to feature length. And I suppose that's a way of asking, um, after Spirited Away and Mononoke, did you then go further into the Ghibli catalogue? Did you like what you saw there? Yeah, but it took a while. Um, I, I think my f- next favorite Miyazaki uh, is probably the next one I saw, which was Totoro. Um, you know, what a like what what a great like what a like super out there answer to be like my two favorite Miyazaki movies are Spirited Away and My Neighbor Totoro. Like I'm really breaking with critical consensus there. Um, I watched them all in fits and starts a few years ago. G Kids put out a bunch of beautiful Blu-rays. And I'm on the G Kids like mailing list. So I got all of them and I just started watching the stuff I hadn't seen. I think my favorite non Miyazaki Ghibli film is Only Yesterday. Um, I just love that movie's evocation of a particular time and place. Um, but that's a movie I would not have liked at, you know, 17. That's a movie I had to come to at 36 or 37. And um, thank goodness I did. It's, it's a perfect movie about that kind of experience. Um, honestly, after uh, Spirited Away, that might be my favorite Ghibli. It's it's that or Totoro. Um, so only yesterday is a little bit different of an answer. Like there we go. I'm really I'm bucking the consensus. Oh no, I'm I'm with you there. I I think only yesterday's a masterpiece. Uh, I and lovely to talk about some Takahata films as well because I think people may be focusing on Miyazaki. Uh, a lot but there's there's such a, a broad collection of films they're actually mentioning uh films that maybe en- end abruptly uh with an, a nonsensical moment uh michael's favorite of all time would be whisper of the heart <laughs> <laughs> have you seen that one emily yeah that's one I, I i have i think i've only seen it once it is not my favorite but yeah yeah i get it but that's one where it may, it may not be about the dream logic or the the imperfections of it all but it is just the the details that that resound for me and the the imbuing of boring suburban life with that magical animator's eye. And yeah, Jake and I have argued about that ending where Miyazaki just said, I need to just pump up the emotion a little bit. Let's have them declare their love for each other in in the beautiful sunrise. (laughs) I mean, you gotta like, uh, you gotta just do it sometimes. You gotta just have them say we're in love and like, sure that happens. It can happen. Emily, moving on from Ghibli just for a second. I've been really fascinated because I know um, quite recently, you dipped your toe into other anime, right? Was it Evangelion? You, you you decided to watch maybe some other stuff. And the story of this podcast is, Jake, okay, Jake, you're still relatively young, but um, coming to anime as an adult rather than somebody who'd watched it as a kid. So, Emily, what's what, what was your experience of coming into that world uh, as an adult? Oh, yeah, yeah. My first... My first anime ever was Mononoke and I was a teen, you know, like I I was not yet an adult, but I was a teen. Like I didn't come to it until um, I guess I watched one episode of Sailor Moon as like a like a tween. And um, as as a trans tween, I was like, this is awakening something in me that I can't look at. So I never watched another one. Um, But yeah. I have for so many years put off getting invested in anime outside of Ghibli because I would be like, Hey, what's a good anime to watch? And like people would give me 500 answers and I would feel so overwhelmed. And like, I get it. You know, if I was going to sit here and tell, uh, you know, a person from Japan who's not terribly 
well versed in American television. The you know the one show they should watch, I'd probably give them six or seven contradictory answers, and it would be driven by my like too much knowledge in the world of American television because like I would be like, well, you have to watch this to understand what Twin Peaks is subverting, and you have to watch Twin Peaks to understand what Sopranos is doing, and like I should probably just say watch the Sopranos, <laughs> like, but. Um, so that was how I would get with anime. And then, uh, Evangelion was on, uh, Netflix and I was like, I think I'm just going to watch this. And I tweeted something to that effect. And people were like, no, you need to watch these 16 other shows that it's subverting and then you'll be ready for it. And I just felt overwhelmed by that. Um, and then my, my good friend, um, Kat Bailey, uh, she's a video games writer for, um, IGN was like, I think you'd like Evangelion. Let's just watch it together. So we did. And I loved it. I, I, you know, I haven't uh, seen anything that quite captured a certain kind of emotional experience in the way that that series did. And, um, you know, it's another one I really relate to um, the work of Lynch, in this case, Twin Peaks. And I think you can draw a direct link there because Twin Peaks was huge in Japan. It would be very difficult for uh, someone like Hideaki Anno to have not heard of it or to have not seen it. And there is like a similar focus on, I would say the moments between moments in both Evangelion and Twin Peaks where like a thing is happening and you're just kind of listening to like the sound of the trees or the droning of cicadas in um, Evangelion. And like, there's a lot of debate about the ending of Evangelion, both the original uh, ending of the show and then the movie that was made. Uh, but like, I kind of like how, how janky the show ends, how it doesn't really end in a way that makes sense, but in a way that makes emotional sense. And I feel like that's at the core of a lot of my favorite things is when a thing doesn't make sense, but it like sort of makes sense all the same. That said, I haven't actually had a chance to sort of move beyond um, the uh, Evangelion of it all. I am, you know, uh, I think I'm going to do um, Cowboy Bebop in a bit to recap for my newsletter, which I've heard is another good entry point. I'm currently watching Avatar The Last Airbender, which is American, but is heavily influenced by anime and like I'm enjoying it. But definitely it does feel like a thing where I'm like, mm, I probably should have like chosen some other things. Um, it felt very weird and whiplashy to go from Evangelion <laughs> to Avatar The Last Airbender because they have such different aims. And like, that's not a knock on them. It's just me being like, I wanted more Evangelion. And then I just pivoted to this other thing because I'd made a commitment to uh, recap it for my newsletter. And like, I'm enjoying the show. I'm really liking it. But it is definitely, it does feel to me like I wanted something different from it. So that's, um. but the fortunate thing is apparently there are 6 billion different anime shows and I can watch a handful of them before I die. <laughs> yeah. I don't, no one's going to get to the bottom of that pile anytime soon, but Hideaki Anno is, is a fascinating character. We've mentioned him a couple of times because he got his first big break from Miyazaki and their paths have crossed so many times over the years. He's seen as in, in some ways, Miyazaki's uh, protege, even though his film's, you know his his TV series and films couldn't be more different, and he is not of the David Lynch Miyazaki world of leave the imperfect thing imperfect. He's going back and trying to make Evangelion perfect right now, and the final film retelling is coming out um, internationally in a couple of months. So we'll see how that looks. I feel like I do feel like yes, he keeps returning to that Evangelion well because. 
outside of Shin Godzilla, none of his other projects have quite hit in the way Evangelion did. And like, so I feel like he keeps going back because he knows there's always money in that particular banana stand. But yeah, I don't know. I like that he keeps going back. And I like how much more resentful he seems every time he comes back at like this thing defined my career and I hate it. Yet he also clearly adores those characters in that world and like the, the story that he told there. So uh, I'm fascinated by him as a media figure. I'm fascinated by him as just like a guy who, who drops into End of Evangelion, the, the movie retelling of the end of the TV show. Like a like a five minute monologue about how much he hates his fans. <laughs> like that's great. That's perfect. Like like uh, both Miyazaki and Ano have like these kind of famously curmudgeonly personas, but it's interesting in where they direct that curmudgeonliness. Um, Miyazaki can be difficult to work with. Um, you know, not uh, not in the way that we talk about people who are difficult to work with in the film and TV industry, you know, where they're abusive or whatever. He's just like kind of an asshole to the people who work with him. And, um, Anno, you know, uh, seems like he is constantly just kind of like hates that people watch the things. he makes. <laughs> we should submit you to Evangelion at some point, Jake. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do it one day. I'm sure. It's so it is. I was deeply skeptical of it and it's so good. It's so good. It's one it's one of the best things I've ever seen. It is another thing that just sort of transcends time and space, you know, um, and, and I think, um, you know, I think there are better TV shows. I think there are fewer like more transcendent TV shows. It's kind of that in Twin Peaks in terms of like this is a thing that feels like it just dropped in from another universe and you just have to appreciate it. You, you got to give it a hand, folks. I'm really fascinated by the ending of the TV series because I recently read Satoshi Kon's opus and I knew about kind of what the final few pages were. And that's the thing that fascinated me most about it. This thing that ends unfinished, but the fact that it is finished in such a way is what makes it so fascinating. Uh, so I almost want to get to Evangelion to watch it all, to watch to the bit that's not finished. And like endings are hard, but I also think endings are overrated. Like an ending is the thing you're going to take away from the work usually, but like, I don't think that's true for most things. I think when you look back on the thing, you often remember a thing that happened somewhere in the middle. Like what is the sequence from uh, spirited away that has become the iconic sequence? It's the train sequence, which comes about two thirds of the way through the movie. I honestly think that's true for most of Miyazaki's films. My neighbor Totoro is like the, the famous image from that is the girls in Totoro, like waiting for the bus in the rain. Like, and that's such an evocative image that again, comes about two thirds of the way through. Like, yes, it's good to have a great ending, but a perfect ending is a function of trying to tell a clockwork story where everything fits in place. It is necessary for certain types of stories. It's not necessary for all types of stories. And I think that, you know, most of Miyazaki's work doesn't need a perfect ending to be good. As we're back on to Spirited Away, um, you mentioned that you wanted to uh, talk about it in relation to your transness. That's not a perspective Michael and I would have on it. And we'd, I'd love to ask you more about that. Yeah, I, um, last year, um, I had to go and get my car repaired and all the information is under, um, my old name. So I had to give my old name and just be like, that's my husband, which is like a thing I can get away with now. Cause I've been on hormones long enough. And so I was, but there was just this weird, like dread 
tied to doing that. And then the repairs didn't go very well. And like I had to wait several hours and I walked to get lunch and got a sunburn, like just everything that could go wrong went wrong. And I got home and I was exhausted and I was like, I'm going to put on Spirited Away. So I put it on and I'm watching it and I'm watching it. And then I remember it's about a, a girl who knows her name and forgets it. And the climax of the movie is her remembering her name and then returning to the life she's supposed to lead. And she can't look back at this, this boy who was her guardian, um, Haku. Uh, and like, there was something so symbolically resonant about that for me. There are a number of artists who make movies, write books, make TV shows that accidentally bump, bump up against trans, the trans experience, whether that's because they have, you know, uh, in some cases, it turns out they have latent gender feelings themselves, like the Wachowskis. I would have put in that, you know, bucket until they were like, no, we're trans women. Um, but a lot of the time, it's just like there are certain places in which the cis experience of life overlaps with the trans experience of life. And I think that Miyazaki, most of his movies have something about the longing for identity, the longing for home, the longing to understand who you are and like fit inside of yourself in some way. And like the resonance of, I have remembered my name and I need to return to my life. But to do that, I can't look back at this, this life jacket that sort of got me there. When I was um, really just starting therapy with a guy who specializes in gender dysphoria, he was like, it's okay to be sad about leaving behind this old name, this old life. It is okay to feel like that was an important part of who you were because it was, but it's also like necessary because it was, it was a life jacket. It was a seatbelt. It was something that held you in place until you could get to a place where you were safe enough to resume your life. And spirited away isn't about that, but you can very easily see how I would read that narrative onto spirited away. It's, you know, it's about the weird things you have to do when you are a 12 year old girl who is, who is spirited away to another world. Um, and like, it's very weird to talk about this in front of cis people because cis people have a very linear understanding of their own existences, which is you hit 11, 12, 13, a thing flips on in your brain, your body starts producing hormones and you like turn into an adult and it's weird and ungainly and awkward and super emotional. And then you get out the other end and you're like, yeah, I did it. I'm an adult. I have it all figured out because we never have to like worry or be anxious as adults. The trans experience is like you get to puberty, your body starts changing kind of without your consent. You are trapped inside of this, this existence that is heading in one direction. And yet some part of your brain remains forever frozen at like this age when it should have headed in a different direction. Um, I'm speaking mostly about the binary trans existence. I'm not talking about um, non-binary folks as much, though they have their own experiences of it. I'm just not someone who can speak with that to that with any great authority. And there is this like refrain I've heard among a lot of binary trans friends of being trapped in a place where you feel like you should know what to do. Where like, um, I would have a lot of friends who were girls throughout my childhood and just be like, there was something there. There was some membrane I couldn't get past. And then I came out and the membrane was gone. Like, like 
you know, um, almost all of my friends are women now. And like, there is a, a deep emotional connection there. Um, and I think spirited away accidentally captures that, that experience of being trapped in a world that you don't understand and being a 12 year old girl and like trying to figure it all out. And then you get to a place where you can finally leave and grow up. And like, that was how it felt. Uh, suddenly I started taking these hormones and a part of my brain that I had not realized was there woke up and like the lights came on and everything reconnected and I could finally start to live. But I was also a 37 year old who was effectively a 13 year old. And like that nonlinearity is not a thing that is easy to portray in most conventional storytelling, which is why I think that anime is so often popular with trans women, especially because it captures a lot of experiences that feel sort of weird and outside of time and complicated. And um, for me, Spirited Away really captures what that journey felt like. But like, I can turn any movie trans. Like I wrote a 2000 word piece about how the horror movie Midsommar is about like feeling disconnected from, you know, a male friend group when you're a trans woman. And like, I do think that movie is about that, but you know, like, yeah, I think spirited away resonates with me in a, on a level that I don't know that cis people would think to look for, which is not to say that like, I like it in a better or purer way. It's just to say that that level exists and is worth contemplating. Oh, and and th thank you for sharing that with us, Emily. As, as as Jake said, it's part of our goal. Of this podcast is to kind of get all the perspectives that we can't provide on the film. And thank you so much for sharing that with us. You did say that um, you don't care about endings, and I suppose we're coming to the end of our conversation. So hopefully, we don't bodge the ending. We do have one question that we like to ask our guests. Michael, I love you. We should get married. <laughs> there we go. Yeah. Go do, do a Miyazaki on the ending. But Jake, we do have one question we like to ask all our guests, don't we? So because we've finished all the Studio Ghibli's films and then we did a series about Satoshi Kons and then we did a series about cartoon saloons. Um, so now we're thinking what comes next and that we've asking all our guests about directors or studios or filmographies uh, that we could explore. Uh, so Emily, if, uh, if you were kind of looking at planning us a future series uh where would where would you want to send us assuming that you're sticking to um mostly animation um and assuming that you are um looking at probably not american animation i do think shomei would be an interesting pick he hasn't made a lot of movies though so that like gets you like a month of, <laughs> of episodes yeah i feel like you i feel like you could do um uh, Plimpton or Hertzfeld pretty easily. Um, those would be great ones. Honestly, it's, it's complicated because they're kind of, um, in a place where they have become simultaneously overrated and under discussed, but I do think there's value to looking at Pixar. Like it's a little bit of an easy choice and they have done a lot of, they've made a lot of creative choices in the last 10 years, I think are kind of not great, but when they're on, they're on, you know, they are probably the best example of a certain kind of American storytelling. Um, and they're very, very, very good at it. And like, yeah, it would be a little off brand, but also like a bunch of people would listen to your toy story episodes. So, um, I don't know. I feel like I honestly, I feel like we're in a place where a lot of this stuff 
that is more interesting and weird than people give it credit for has entered our cultural consciousness as like, wasn't that, uh, wasn't that memeable? Like, I feel like that way about a lot of like early Disney, you know, I think there's room to talk about the Disney films that Walt Disney himself was involved in. Like those are all darker and weirder than I think people give them credit for. Not all of them, but a lot of them. I don't know. I feel like uh, I feel like there's a lot of fun directions to go, but I'd say Chalmay, um or there is a French studio that produced things like The Big Bad Fox and um, the movie Ernest and Celestine um, that is doing some interesting stuff. Um, Plimpton, Hertzfeldt, both very uh, influential independent animators. But yeah, I think there's a lot of different ways uh, you could go with this. And um, I'm excited to see what you come up with. Well, Emily, as, as you said, when someone asks about what TV series to watch, you come out with six answers. I mean, they're, they're, all those answers are, are, are perfect. One of our guests on a previous episode, Paul Williams, who is based in Japan now, he worked on The Illusionist. So we, we've already spoken a little bit about Shomei before. So that could be a really good direction to go in. And we've had we've had a handful of Pixar animators and directors as well. So it feels like Pixar is going to be an inevitable direction for us to take. I do. I do think Pixar is an interesting topic of discussion. You know, I, I have loved I've loved most of their movies. There's a couple of those movies that are right up there with my favorites of all time. And you look at something like Ratatouille and you're like, that was made by an American studio and made hundreds of millions of dollars and yet is as close as that kind of animation has come to the sort of like intuitive, you know, not everything is under, understood or explained animation that Ghibli does. And like, but then you also have things like the Cars movies, which are like everything has a reason to exist. And like, that that's fine. But yeah, I do think that Pixar has gotten there a few times. And then there are other times when they've just like kind of tripped over their own feet in the process of trying to get there. And I, I find that very fascinating. Yeah, I'd listen to a series on that. Well, I'd be very happy to do that because as Ratatouille is one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, if we can do some Pixar episodes, Michael, I would be thrilled. Uh, but Emily, thank you uh, so much for spending some time with us and talking about Spirited Away and so much, of, uh, so many other wonderful things as well. It's been a real pleasure. It's been wonderful to drop in. I had a great time. Thank you so much to Emily van der Werf for joining us today and for talking about Spirited Away, bringing all sorts of new resonance and depth and layers to a film that Jake, you and I have watched many times and thought we'd thought every thought that could be thought about. <laughs> it's great to have other perspectives added to the pot as well. Yeah, I think I, I genuinely having to reconsider my feelings about the ending of the film uh michael you've you've taken three years and you still haven't convinced me about the ending of whisper of the heart and emily took 45 minutes and uh <laughs> she's managed to do do right by the end of spirited away which is uh, no mean feat yes you can catch up with emily's work at fox.com or on twitter at emily vdw and of course if you want to keep up with emily's fictional true crime podcast arden that's on twitter at arden pod or i'm sure you know how to find it on whatever podcatcher is your favorite yes and we will be back with another guest next week if you want to keep up with us in the interim, you can find us on Twitter at Ghibliotech or drop us an email, ghibli at little.studios.com. And Michael is on Twitter. He's over there at Michael J. Leader. And you can follow Jake on Twitter at Jake H. Cunningham. 
Ghibliotech is a Little Dot Studios production. Our artwork is by Sophie Moe, our music is by Anthony Ng, and James Payne is our editor. The show is produced by Michael Leader, Jake Cunningham, Harold McShill, and Steph Watts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.